This podcast may contain mature content, strong language and spoilers. Hello and welcome to episode 34 of the HD Movie Podcast. I'm Darren Gaskell. And I'm Hayley Alice Roberts. And again, guess what? We have more sharks this episode. Yep. Big ones as well. Yeah, the, the biggest <laughs> ones we've featured so far as we have invited Kate Orton back and we're going to be discussing John Turtletown's 2018 film The Meg starring The Stays. As we said a few seconds ago, this week's movie is the 2018 blockbuster The Meg, directed by John Turtletow. And with us to discuss it is Kate Alton. Hello, Kate. Just when you thought it was safe to get back in the podcast, I'm here again. <laughs> Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Welcome back. Okay, so The Meg is based on a 1997 novel um, called Meg a novel of deep terror by Steve Alton. Interestingly, Walt Disney had the original rights to the film and it was intended to be released back in the 90s, but they did not want to compete with the film we covered last week, Deep Blue Sea. Eventually, Warner Brothers greenlit the film after it was stuck in development hell. So it was then revived in 2015 and then obviously came out in 2018. So what is The Meg about? Who's going to tell us what the Meg is about? Say it isn't so. Say we haven't got another Nick Reganis synopsis. This guy just keeps on giving the gift of shark movie synopsises to us. In the words of Nick Reganis, this is the plot of the Meg. Deemed insane for claiming that the failed rescue mission in the Philippine waters was doomed because of a seemingly extinct predator of epic proportions, prehistoric Megalodon, Jonas Taylor, the world's greatest deep sea rescue diver, finds himself in the vast ocean realm of Mariana Trench five years later. But as three scientists of an underwater research facility near Shanghai get trapped inside a crippled submersile attacked by an unknown creature, Jonas will need to work fast to redeem himself. Could the disgraced rescuers' theories about the vicious underwater leviathan be true after all? Uh, nice one, Nick. You are a shark synopsizing god. So the Meg, I mean, I remember seeing this at the cinema on a very, very large screen. And I think that's probably the best way to see it. You probably need to see it on the biggest screen you can possibly find, because visually there's a lot going on, even if plot wise, there might not be quite as much to tax your brain. But hey, I'm a big fan of the stairs. So I was in for this movie anyway. As soon as they were announcing what the Meg was going to be like, I think they pretty much sold it as Jason Statham v Massive Shark. And I was like, yeah, I'm in. 
I don't know how I missed this at the cinema, but the first time I watched it was on a sick day where I was lying on the sofa, unable to function. And I thought, I need, I need something that's going to be comfortable and entertaining and just keep my brain gently occupied. And man, does this film fit that bill. This is, for horror fans especially, this is the definition of a comfort movie. Because, yeah, it, it isn't going to tax your cerebrals too much, but it's going to give you everything it promises. And I love this movie. If you like sharks, here you go. Have one that is 23 metres long. If you love the stath, here, have him in spades. Have him with his shirt off, no less. Have him raising that eyebrow and a cheeky smile. Oh, you love a diverse cast? Here's an ensemble of really interesting characters who are all multidimensional. Oh, you love a bit of gore and violence? Yeah, there's going to be limbs and arms and things being ripped off and a bit of blood. So I'm so glad, actually, that this did not end up being a Disney property straight through and through. Because a lot of the punches that this film delivers just wouldn't have been there. But I think that the, the end product still has some of that Disneyfication. There are moments in it that are pure fantasy, pure sci-fi, that Thousand Leagues Under the Sea type stuff. I love this movie. Excellent. I generally think it's a pretty good movie. I think I've got issues with certain bits of it. I think that it takes a little bit too much time faffing around with the characters when it should be focusing on the shark. There's lots and lots of soul searching. So it does develop the characters. You get quite a lot of backstory. You may get too much backstory if you're waiting for the shark to start chomping through people. It's quite a while before but it is, gets isn't to that. that when you get up and make a cup of tea, Darren? Yeah, Let's it be probably fair. is, yeah. I mean, and to be perfectly honest, the first 30 minutes of the movie is quite a serviceable deep sea rescue flick. So you get that grafted onto the shark action. It's serving quite a lot of purposes, this movie. And to be perfectly honest, it's only rated 12. You couldn't pitch it these days like the Deep Blue Sea, which is going for a bit more gore. They had to pitch it at such a level that would be palatable to at least some type of family viewing. It is gory, but it's not too gory that it's going to upset too many people. And because of the enormous budget as well, I mean, we covered Deep Blue Sea last time, which had about a $70 million budget. Depending on which sources you read, it could have been $130 million, it could have been $180 million. So let's go in the middle, say it was about $150, $160 million to make this. And if you're going to spend that amount of money on a movie, you can't alienate too much of your audience. Yeah, it, this is the sort of film that you could take your, your kind of tweeny kids to see without too much difficulty. When we were talking about Deep Blue Sea, I was saying, you know, that was a film that I was taking to see age 11, which, you know, might be questionable parenting, depending on your point of view. However, this film, you could safely take an 11-year-old to go and see. And, you know, they might have to hide behind their hands a little bit at certain moments of it, but it's it's not got the the level of threat and the level of violence that something like Deep Blue Sea or even, even something like Jaws mm. has. Yeah, I'm agreeing with Darren on how slow the movie is to begin with. I like, though, the element of the underwater scenes. It's very claustrophobic because 
And what I found with all these kind of sharp movies, like especially like 47 Meters Down as well, it's that claustrophobia that I find scarier than the sharks itself. But I did find it quite interesting. I don't know whether they were going for like the Jaws angle where they were just like taking their time before revealing the beast, so to speak. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's, it's quite a long film. Maybe it could have been a bit shorter, but overall it was very enjoyable. I, I did like it a lot. Not as much as Deep Blue Sea, but it's it's got a lot to like about it. It's also a visually very engaging film. There's so many colours and the, the set design is beautiful. Everything from the kind of the above water shots where where we, we get those panoramics of the ocean or um, later on of the kind of the Chinese beach scene down to the design of this, this underwater centre, which seems to just be some mad billionaire's personal investment still not really clear why that space is there but fine let's not ask too many questions and it feels a bit like kind of sea world meets star wars you have these beautiful twisty tunnels and lots of glass i'm presuming which seems counterintuitive but fine and the scenes where they are going on this initial marion trench exploration they pass through some mythic kind of thermocline barrier descend below it and suddenly you're an avatar there's all these sparkly pretty things and they've just sort of gone yeah let's not make it realistic let's let's make it a fantasy film where we can imagine what might be in the real uncharted areas of the ocean which i'm sure made anybody with any sort of marine biology knowledge or understanding chew on their fingernails but we're we're here for that kind of grandiose fantasy film and I think you you do have to have a big suspension of disbelief there's a lot of tech in this film that is completely unrealistic I mean the people in it are pretty unrealistic uh, pretty being the operative word <laughs> and if you can kind of just jump beyond that and just go you know what I'm, I'm here for for the silliness for the fun of this film you will have a really good time with it. If you go into it looking for true life representation of how humans interact or what the ocean is really like or what science has to offer us in this day and age, then you're just going to be causing yourself a heartache. Don't bother. Yeah, I mean, it's got Jason Statham as the lead, so you're not going to be plunged into a, a deep and meaningful examination of the human psyche. It's Statham. Statham versus Shark. He's got a troubled past. He wants to put all of that behind him. He's got an ex-wife. He's got all these problems. But you just know that Stay's going to... Well, like with most of his stuff, Statham's solution to most things is to shoot it or punch it or blow it up. And he pretty much does all three to the Sharks in this movie. But kudos to him. You know, he, he is using his real-life expertise as, as an ex-diver. Yeah. He is the right person to be cast in a film that is an action film set in the sea. As much as anyone can be believable in this role of... How did how did you describe his, his job title? World's expert underwater <laughs> rescue hero man. Yeah, not really sure that job role exists, so happy to be corrected. But that even that opening scene where we see him and his his rescue crew are going down to a submarine that's in some sort of peril, and they are the extraction team trying to get the crew out. 
and he gets the crew out but two of his own team are then trapped and he has to make the decision that nobody could ever imagine making and he does he makes that split second decision to leave his teammates behind and so we are immediately aligned with him we have that empathy for him because we know he's made that decision because he's trying to be altruistic and so few characters i guess in in kind of modern horror or action films are have that altruistic motivation which i thought was quite interesting and then he is having to be brought back in you know like like so many kind of action tropes where i think even the fast and furious films do that where he has to be brought back in yeah. to, to fulfill a role so that's you know there's certain things that we've we've seen a million times over but i like you darren i'm a big fan of the state i think he's got a real cheekiness about him that that brings a charm to the roles that he plays so as a kind of a leading man who otherwise could be very one note, like when we think back to our, our discussion last time about Deep Blue Sea, where we had serious shark wrangler man with all of his, his brooding eyebrow and never cracking a smile. The Stath, he has a very similar character to play here, but he does it in a way that is endearing, aligns you with him, and you're, you're really rooting for him. And I think that the other characters around him, um, yes, they have to take a lot of time getting to know because I didn't count them, but there's there's got to be seven or eight kind of key players in this team and they, they all bring something to the party. None of them have that kind of flatness to them that can so often happen with an ensemble cast. Mm. Definitely. So interestingly... Eli Roth was approached to direct this film and he'd also expressed interest in starring in it in the Jason Statham role. Can you imagine? <laughs> I nearly spat my drink out. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to pour cold water on Eli Roth's acting because I think he's pretty good in Inglorious Bastards. I just can't see him in this role. Eli Roth is the lead of this. It's, it's a strange one. I don't think it would have been the same sort of movie. I think... Statham has his own persona, which he brings to the role, and I think it suits this kind of action role perfectly. But yeah, it's a it's a weird one. Um, Eli Roth can do horror that's not particularly pitched at the sort of gorier end of the spectrum. Because if you've seen um, House with a Clock in Its Walls, that's really good, and that's that's pitched at kind of tweens. But it's an odd choice though, if they considered Eli Roth, it ended up in a better place overall. Going back to how it looks, the money is up on the screen. I mean, it might have cost a ton of cash to make, but it looks absolutely gorgeous. They've made a really good job with all the visuals. So they haven't blown the budget on something that kind of looks okay. Everything about it is very, very polished. Um, what did you guys think of the, the rendering of the Meg itself? I think some of it is really good i think it's some of it's a little bit ropey i liked the bits where you can see the shadow of it underwater you know that's really really effective i think cgi for sharks has always posed some kind of problem because last time we were going on about the cgi in deep blue sea and i think whereas it's progressed it hasn't progressed quite as much as other cgi because you can see shark movies that have been made kind of four or five years ago 
and the CGI is still terrible for the sharks in it. So I think maybe that's the last barrier for CGI is getting decent looking sharks in it. But this is okay. Interesting, isn't it's it? A, it's okay, yeah. We can render fur. Yeah. <laughs> so what, what is it about a smooth-skinned predatory fish that causes <laughs> CGI artists so much difficulty? It is a but, yeah, one. The, yeah, there are some scenes that feel like a, a kind of, it would look great for a video game. Mm. But then there are other bits, and I know what you mean about the scenes of it passing under the water. There's a particular scene where there's a paddleboarder going over it. Yeah. That's that's beautifully rendered. But then other parts of it where it has a real uncanny valley thing to it um, that kind of takes you a little bit out of the action. What did you think, Hayley? Yeah, I think it definitely looks a bit unrealistic with the CGI. So, yeah, again, it is weird, like, why they can't seem to get it looking realistic it's, it's definitely a strange one it's again you have to suspend your disbelief with it oh well it didn't like detract too much i mean i thought it looked as good as it could and i like like the whole its presence as well because it was just so massive and it's the biggest shark we've covered <laughs> so far it just makes me laugh so actually bits i did like it that in in the the design of it is that it has um remoras those smaller sucker fish on it you know there there are nods to the reality of kind of the marine environment that are there yes it's it's not completely accurate but at least it, it feels like a giant fish as opposed to um something like 47 meters down uncaged where <laughs> it feels like someone could have done a better job if they just got a cardboard shark and walked <laughs> it through the scenes so it's a good rendition of something that people are really struggling to get right I think and I believe there is a sequel in the works as well so it'll be very interesting to see if um, anything improves in terms of the CGI with Ben Wheatley tipped to direct what yeah what is this if if Ben Wheatley is going to do a shark movie I am there I oh Darren (laughs) wild horses could not (laughs) Yeah, I, I just I'm trying having a hard time trying to imagine what this could possibly look like. Exactly. <laughs> it, it's Ben Wheatley. It's the shark movie. It's got Jason Statham in it. Please take my money. <laughs> yeah, is there like a Patreon for this? Because I want the T-shirt. <laughs> I'm invested. <laughs> yeah, I'm hoping Ray Shearsmith pops up at one point as like a cheeky kind of skipper on the ship or something I'll see what happens <laughs> bit of michael smiley over here you know <laughs> alice lowe is the tea lady i'm gonna do a bit of a left turn because there's a trope that we hate on this podcast which is killing pets off for no reason <laughs> whatsoever and we've gone on about it quite a lot and there is a sequence in this quite near the end where there's a little yorkshire terrier paddling out to sea it's quite an amusing sequence because you get this little dog paddling out. It, it cops an eye full of the Meg closing in on it and then it turns around and starts paddling back. <laughs> now, to all intents and purposes, when the Meg's closing in on it, you think, yeah, the dog's a goner. But as it's revealed towards the very end of the movie, the dog does, in fact, survive. Yeah, that made me very happy. Yeah, we absolutely detest that trope in films. We just find it so cruel and unnecessary. And 
if it's a cat, I can't even look. I have to like get Darren to tell me where to skip the film along to. I believe that was in the movie Mikey that we covered a few months ago. Yes, yes. Um, so with this, like, yeah, I was feeling a bit like, oh, no. But I still was able to watch it because it's a 12 movie. It's not going to be something too horrific. But yeah, I'm glad the dog survived. That was a bonus point for the film. I really enjoyed that that whole set piece where we're towards the end of the film and the Meg is head, heading for, is it Shanyu? It's, I think uh, it's Sanya Sh- Bay. San, oh, Sanya Bay yeah. um, in China. And I believe it was actually filmed on location. And we have this lovely overhead shot of all these bathers in the sea. And they've got them all on colour-coordinated rubber rings and i just thought the visual of that was lovely it's it's pink and yellow and blue and green and there's just hundreds of people in the water and so it's it's like shark skittles and then we cut to a fancy gin palace boat where there's a wedding happening and the sort of bridezilla having her photo saying she's holding the little yorkie with a pink bow in its hair fur i should say and um yeah the bride's party kind of jump off the back of the boat just going you've ruined my wedding what are you doing and then the yorkie jumps on after them and i just thought that's lovely because there was again as we know the law is you have to reference jaws if you're a shark film that's come out after jaws and we have the the little child who wants to go swimming and mummy says okay but don't go too deep so we have you know the little kid and a boy but he survives in this iteration he survives to float in his little birdie rubber ring and eat his ice cream and i i align myself quite hard with that kid like just let everyone else scream and panic and just chill out and eat your ice cream man you do you yeah the very end sequence where there's just basically human buffet for the Meg to chow down on. I'm going to be generous and say that it gets distracted a little bit too easily because <laughs> it could have taken out dozens of these people. If I'm going to be slightly more unfair, at that point, considering it's been a pretty efficient killing machine up to that point in the movie, when it's confronted with a beach full of people who are floating around in rubber rings and jumping off platforms and all sort of packed together and not really able to escape very quickly. It's surprisingly shit. (laughs) But I think that that there's a choice about what they show because if we were talking about a 15 rated film, there'd be limbs floating in the water. But remembering that this is a 12, and so we need to show some sort of destruction without really showing it. And so instead of heads coming off and blood in the water, we have particular images instead that suggest that people are being eaten without actually showing it. And there's a really wonderful one with a guy in one of those Zorb things who earlier is happily laughing and running across the surface of the water. And then he's panicked and trying to get away and is bawling people out of the way. And the shark, the Meg, leaps out, grabs this ball, and it just goes, <laughs> and the bits fly at the screen. It, I really enjoyed that. But yeah, I, I can see how that would come across. But also the distracted thing, if we think of them as human skittles, then if somebody sounds a bell and goes, yeah, there's a full burger and chips over here, you put the skittles down. Mm. So I'm, I'm on the Meg's side here. I would definitely do that too. Yeah. 
the distraction has got the stath on the end of it, waiting to kick its ass. So. <laughs> it's gonna punch it in the face, man. <laughs> I was surprised that the stairs didn't just headbutt it at the end. Because I was kind of thinking, well, you know, like massive prehistoric shark versus the stay, the massive prehistoric shark has got no chance against this guy. <laughs> we could do that as a game. Who would win in a fight? X or the stay? In this case, it's the Meg. It's generally but, gonna know. be the stay. It's gonna. I mean, the stay's just gonna be beating most all comers. I mean, this is coming from a guy who just. I think that the transporter movies are genius. I will not have any shade thrown upon the Transporter movies. Me and Mark Kermode, I will defend the Transporter movies with as much vigour as Mark Kermode does because they are perfect action movies and anybody who tells you otherwise is wrong. And I'm like that with Fast and Furious. Is it? I can't even remember the number. The yes. one with him, The Rock and Idris Elba. Oh, yeah, it is a bit of a thirst trap, I have to say, but... It's a good, good time. Yeah, Hayley, so... do, you sh- do you share our obsessive love? Thursdays? <laughs> no, I really don't. I've <laughs> him in anything. So, like, is this the first film I've seen of him? Quite possibly. Yeah, he was just, to me, you know, that kind of typical action hero. I even said, like, I think he's like a British Bruce Willis, maybe, that kind of type. I'd have to see a bit more of his movies to um, appreciate him, maybe. I think we can probably write you a list. Amy. Yeah, I would have thought so. Yeah. I felt more on the Meg side, though. I'm a bit different because, as I say, I empathise more with these sharks and, you know, if these humans didn't just, like, poke around and antagonise these sharks, then, you know, just let them be. Just let them be. Let them let them do them. And, and that is the message of this film, as it is with so many of these, not just shark films, but kind of man versus nature films, is stop sticking your nose in where it wasn't wanted there is a you know great big in this film thermocline across the bottom of the mariana trench within habitable water that nobody and nothing can pass through it's there for a reason what do they call that in film theory where you have the there is a barrier that has to be trespassed across if that's there bad shit's going to happen on the other side of it don't do it if it weren't for the state, <laughs> then I'd probably be more aligned with the Meg. Yeah. And yet again, why is it here? What does it want? What every shark wants. And that's that's what Jaws get so right, is that they eat and they make little sharks. Yeah, this one just does it on a bigger scale. Yeah, in terms of general stath love, every time I go to see a movie with the stath in and my wife finds out that it's a stath movie, she just rolls her eyes and goes, oh, God, not another movie with the state. I've uh, got a lot of love for the state. And, I, mean, I know uh, you've been happily married for many years, Darren, but I feel like you might need to divorce her. <laughs> I like the fact... She, doesn't, terms, she doesn't listen to this, does she? Uh, well, if she's, if she's going to listen to this episode, there could be some trouble. I might, might have to do some judicious editing later on. Um, in terms of, of love for the stairs in this movie, there's a lot of love for the stairs, literally, because his ex-wife seems to get on quite well with him, even though there's not really much of a hint that they're going to get back together. But then there's another love interest for him, a serious scientist lady, not quite as serious as Saffron Burroughs in Deep Blue Sea, but still quite serious. 
And she's gets... not quite as boring as Saffron. No, she's, she's not. She's and, not sorry, Saffron. And she and she doesn't she doesn't have to get a scene where she's suddenly in her underwear for almost no reason whatsoever. But the snake is in a towel. He is, yeah. I I rolled my eyes. I thought, oh, typical. This is just you know here for the eye candy, but did nothing for me. I'm afraid. He's a fine but looking man. Don't you love that the the love interest? Yeah. Yeah. Leaves the room and yeah. then goes back and clocks him again through the door. <laughs> yeah. It is subverting gender roles yeah. and I love that. So cheesy. <laughs> and I think uh, Lee Bingbing, who's the love interest in this, gets a decent character arc and she's an interesting character and she isn't just there to serve the fact that she's going to be swooning over the stairs. Now she's got her own fish to fry. Sorry about the pun. <laughs> <laughs> But this is what I think this film does really well, is that the characterization of everybody who's really part of this ensemble cast. You know, if we, we start with the ex-wife, I think the character's name is Laurie. Yes. And just yeah. shout out here, a um, bit of facts for you. That actress was, uh, mine, she played a minor part in The Loved Ones. Oh, cool. Yeah, it's referenced later on that they were only married for about six months. They didn't make a good couple, and now they're just friends. And there's there's nothing left between them, and it's just platonic friendship, which is quite refreshing to see. And it doesn't become a love triangle. We have the new love interest, who is a single mother. We don't have a great sob story about why she's a single mother. We learn nothing about the the little girl's father. We then have the love interest's own father. So there's a, there is a family dynamic there. So we have that um, sense of loss and uh, jeopardy when it comes to those family relationships. We've got a few of the science team on the boat, but all of them are, are you know, they have individual relationships with each other and with the state. Interesting to draw some comparisons, I think, actually, between there's a character called DJ, who is the kind of African-American cast member. There is yeah. only one. And LL Cool J's character in Deep Blue Sea. Um, so there's a lot of similarities about that kind of light relief. They even look quite similar, which is interesting. But he is one of the survivors at the end of the film. Um, he also has that introspective element to him. And there are moments where there's there's kind of reference to you know this has just happened and you know we just have to deal with it and move on and he's like no my friends have died my friend is dead and that's not okay and you have caused this and so that there's more than just that one note to these guys also big shout out to i forget the actor's name but hero from heroes who is our he's oh, our Masi masioka Thank you, which to me was the biggest loss in the entire film. So I'm a big fan of Heroes and of the character Hero. So we did a little yetai when he died. Yeah, I, I think that we have a really rich uh, a rich serving of, of characters here. And I, I cared about them. Whereas I, I can't necessarily say that about some of the other shark films I've watched recently. True. I mean, even the corporate guy... Again, he's kind of portrayed as a bit of a playboy who's kind of throwing his money about, but he does have some redeeming features. He likes the people that he meets. Movie plots dictate that he goes a bit off the rails at the end and tries to deal with the Meg himself, which which is never going to end well. But even then, he's playing a character. I mean, Rain Wilson, who is uh, Dwight from The Office, 
playing a little bit against type because he's he's kind of well he's much less nerdy than Dwight from the office I mean I think pretty much everybody on the planet is less nerdy than Dwight from the office but yeah I mean th- there's a lot of different approaches in terms of character in this so you're not just getting served up with a bunch of ciphers it's just kind of line them up shoot them down it doesn't go out of its way to up the body count by just disposing of some of these characters for no reason at all some of them have to sacrifice each other but none of the deaths in this particularly are the more main characters they don't feel unearned yeah i think that's a fair shout the death that maybe feels most like a kind of a narrative trope is of you have to forgive me because like i'm terrible with names so the the love interest character's father yes and you know he's up to that point he's contributing to the progress of the plot and he has kind of individual agency he sort of sacrifices himself a little bit to help out the others and um that did feel a little bit like okay we need something to to kind of pin that moment and orient ourselves to the humanity of these characters rather than being caught up solely in the shark elements of this film which a bit like you said Haley, I'm kind of here for the shark stuff I think you said that I didn't necessarily need that beat but I can forgive it for doing that I can see why that would work in the general kind of tonal arc of the film yeah the deaths aren't throwaway and they do try and put some emotional impact in there which is interesting but it just depends what you want out of the film like some people will just want the shark violence they're not going to get too much splattering gore with this one as we've discussed because it is more aimed at like a family audience maybe it's like jaws light i don't know but it's <laughs> yeah i i think my issue mainly with it was it was just a bit overlong it was packing too much in but as i said that said i really did enjoy it i had a good time with it yeah, and having double featured them this afternoon, this with Deep Blue Sea, is not not that we record two episodes at once, of course. Of course. Um, not to maintain that illusion. They they sit very well together because the Meg screams as it's it's Deep Blue Sea, but it is the twenty years on version. It's with our our more woke sensibilities, our understanding of how to develop a character, our understanding of um, representation and diversity and also that kind of inclusion of, of fantastical elements but rooted in an engaging reality so there are some real direct comparisons there's even the, the characters I mentioned earlier DJ in this film and LL Cool J's character preach in Deep Blue Sea both refer to the shark as the devil I wondered if that might be a direct reference from one to the other. Not sure, could just be a coincidence, but I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, that's really cool. And um, if they had come out at the same time, I don't think it would have been as interesting. They'd have been too similar. And um, it's kind of nice that we've got, you know, the 90s version and then this like more modern version. So they are a good double bill. I do agree there. The one thing it needs is is some LL Cool J on the soundtrack. <laughs> Are you going to sing some for us, Darren? I am definitely not going to sing some because I don't want a lot of LL Cool J fans sending us hate mail. <laughs> and on that bombshell, I think uh, our discussion of the Meg is almost at an end. Once again, we have to thank Kate for joining us over the last couple of episodes. 
thank you for all your input on Deep Blue Sea and the Meg. And we really hope that we'll have you back soon. Maybe to discuss sharks, maybe to discuss something completely different. I look forward to it. We also have a face-off series that we do where we look at two films from one actor or actress. And after our conversation in this episode, we could always look at Jason Statham. I clearly need to be more educated about his movies to make a more informed opinion on his acting talents. Oh, so you... maybe we could do that at some point, guys. Oh, you do not know what you're bringing on yourself, Ailey. <laughs> I do wish we could chat longer. And that's it for episode 34 of the HD Movie Podcast. As always, thank you for listening. And if you enjoyed this episode, check out more of our episodes and you can find us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at HD Movie Podcast. Drop us a comment about what you think of the films we cover and if you have any suggestions of future films you'd like us to cover. Next episode. Well, we're heading towards the end of the Summer of Sharks, but we've still got a couple of shark movies to cover. And on the next episode, it's a movie that neither of us have seen. It's Surrounded. Not sure what I'm letting myself in for with this one. Do not have high expectations, but I'll let you know in the next episode what I think of it. Until then, stay safe, everybody. See you soon. The HD Movie Podcast is presented by Hayley Alice Roberts and Darren Gaskell. Its music is written and performed by Mitch Bain. You can find the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, Player FM, Listen Notes and Podbean.